Eastern Orthodoxy. It may not be your favorite thing in the world, and it is a bit more apologetic than church history, but since we came to that point in church history where they had the Great Schism, where the East split from the West in the church, so you ended up with a Roman Catholic Church we call today in the West, and the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East, there still is quite a few people who follow Eastern Orthodoxy. You have Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and then various nationalities after that, Assyrian Orthodox, and so on. Uh, Generally, they believe the same things, at least when it comes to these four. But the Eastern belief system is not like the Western. The Western studies, the Western follows after men like Augustine and and tries to define what Scripture says. Now, sometimes the West gets it wrong, and we'll look at that. But sometimes they get it right. And they are seeking to understand, seeking to know. In the East, it's not like that. There's not this emphasis on theology, on right understanding of the Bible. And so it's, it's different. And we covered last week, the first distinct, distinctive is mystery. There's an emphasis on mystery. You just can't know. And so why attempt to do that? You see some of this in the charismatic movement today. This idea that it's about more about feelings and action and sort of having this mysterious faith and stop trying to understand things even that are in the Bible. Now we all should agree as Christians there are things about God we cannot understand. But if it's written in Scripture, the Bible is very clear that it was given to us for us. And God tells Moses this was written for you and for your children to the nation of Israel. There are secret things that belong to God. And that's the things he didn't tell us because they're secret. They belong to him. But the revealed things, he says to Moses, belong to you and your children. And that applies all the way through the New Testament. But this is more than that. This is just saying, don't focus on trying to understand even what's in Scripture. Focus more on how it's just a big mystery. uh, We looked at that last time. Tradition is also a big thing. We, We like tradition. I was just talking to a brother before this class on how tradition is important to Protestants, to reform people as well. But it's different in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. They elevate tradition further. It's not just that tradition can teach us some things, but it is often equal to Scripture. So even in the Catholic Church, they're checked by the Reformation. They have to think about tradition. The East never had a Reformation occur amongst them. And so they believe that the Holy Spirit inspired not just the Bible, but all the ecumenical councils as well, the first seven they hold to. And they say that a Pentecost miracle occurred. That's why we know it's of the Holy Spirit, they said, because all these Christians came together and decided on important doctrine. So we're now picking up on number three. Number three, the third distinctive of Eastern Orthodoxy is theosis. And this is a Greek term that means deification. Not just becoming like God, but essentially taking on godlike attributes. It's a summary of Eastern Orthodox understanding. It's a thing that they're seeking for. Salvation to them is becoming as close to God as a human can become, not in proximity, but in likeness. So to become like God. This concept is often expressed more strongly. It said they say God became man so that man might become God. So it's more than just saying let's let's be godly like God. We are called to be holy like He is holy. But they would say God became man so that man might become God. And if you 
press on what that means, then there's a withdrawal into this is just mysterious. We can't all we can't figure it out. Can't delineate it, and that's not the type of thinking that you see in the East. Now in the West, the theologians were were very uncomfortable with those expressions because the language is suggestive of heresy. In the West, the mystics use similar language uh, later on in medieval times and are accused of pantheism. So there are mystics in the Roman Catholic Church and they're coming back around as being very popular today. And they speak some similar language. We are going to become God, whatever that means. That's, that's why they're called mystics, because it's very mystical. You can't pinpoint exactly what is being said or seek scripture and, and find a verse for it. And even those Western mystics are accused of pantheism, believing that all things, everything is God, that pan means all. So everything and theism is God. Everything is God. A big way that they worship and an important distinctive is icons, images of Christ and the saints are present everywhere as objects of veneration. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, they they will debate you whether they're actually worshiping the object. They are. I mean, you bow down to something, you pray to it, you're you're venerating it, essentially worshiping it. In the East, they won't even really. It's not a big deal. Of course, of course, we we use objects. Of course, we do. We're not even going to debate it. Um, they portray. They say these icons, Christ in His power as the King and Judge. And the West usually has icons more of Christ suffering on the cross. So think of the crucifix in the Catholic Church or a crucifix that with Christ on the cross that sometimes Catholics wear around their neck. That's their focus. The Eastern Church is more Christ with a crown, a halo. And often the icons do have this golden shimmery appearance. This was a controversy in the early church in the 8th and 9th centuries. They had councils. They met over it. One council said, don't use icons, that's heresy. Then later the people sort of won out and got their icons back with a a future council. So today you're roughly going to divide the Orthodox into three groups. Oriental Orthodox, these are the Coptics in Egypt, Ethiopian Orthodox in Ethiopia, Armenians in Armenia, and the the Syriac. So it depends on nationality. It's a similar belief system, but national groups think a little differently when it comes to how they practice their faith, or at least the the ways they go through church and worship and such. One of the things you'll find if you've ever seen pictures or maybe been to an Orthodox church is they don't sit down. They stand up. There's no long sermon to sit down for. It might be 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes you'll find some that sit on rugs, but typically they're standing up, and there's lots of bells and smells and different things. The Byzantine Orthodox, this would be what we would call the Greek, known as the national churches, Greek, Russian, Bulgarian, Romanian, Serbian, Albanian, and so on. They all basically come out of the Greek focus that was in Constantinople and spread to all these other nations as the Russians became Christianized, as they became a Christian kingdom. They took on the closest variant to them of Christianity, which was the Greek Orthodox. The same for these other countries uh, in that eastern part of Europe. And then there's the Eastern Catholic churches. They don't use the, the name Orthodox. They still say they're Catholic because they've accepted papal authority. So in a sense, they're Eastern Orthodox, but they actually look to the Pope in Rome, which is kind of an interesting mix. But The Pope's not usually too concerned about what you mix in with 
Roman Catholicism even today. Any questions on that? Just a short overview. Yes. I think it's it's individualistic. Yeah, it's not like we're all going to be absorbed in God. It's going to, it's as close to saying we're going to become gods as you can get without actually saying it. It's not like the Mormons who say we're going to have our own planet and become a god. But they believe that whatever God is like, that's the way we're going to be. But we won't actually be God, but we will be God-like. So it's, after that, it's just mystery. Yeah, but it's not communal. It's not like the hive, the communal hive that, you know, everybody's going to be absorbed into. All right, let's move on now to the Crusades. So we looked at the Great Schism, the splitting of the church, the reasons for that. Now we're on to the Crusades. What every, uh, well, used to, every young boy loved to dress up and fight with swords. And my boys still do that. They take these pieces of old fence and get splinters when they fight. But uh, they all want to dress up as knights. And this is where we think of the Middle Ages as sort of that time of knights and armor and jousting. Actually, that's not happening in this time period. The jousting and the plate armor comes later. Uh, but they do have armor. They do fight. Um, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to go into detail on the first crusade. And then we're probably going to go pretty quick through the others because there's a lot. There's at least eight major ones. And after that, anytime Christians go fight non-Christians, pagans, it's called a crusade. So all the way up through really the 1800s, you can call uh, something a crusade. But we're going to talk about the ones generally recognized as the medieval crusades. They went from 1095 to 1291. And here you're going to see that the church, the Roman Catholic Church, has great authority. They've taken authority away from these kings, away from these nations, and, and sort of hold power over it. Now, the king still reigns in his own country, but the Pope often tells the king what to do on certain matters, including uh, why it would be so beneficial to go and fight. So here's a famous painting on the crusade, the first crusade. And you can see the, uh, the papal legate there with his symbols and uh, they have these keys on the flag. That symbolized in the medieval times the Pope's ability to rule over all the nations. So that's the keys of the kingdom, they said, that come from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. And the Pope said, that's him. He's the successor of Peter. So he has the keys of all the kingdoms, I guess, and uh, he will reign supreme. So what are, what are the Crusades? Uh, military expeditions. There were eight major ones that we'll briefly look at the last seven. Uh, to recover the Holy Land from the Muslims. So that's what a crusade is. It was to recover the Holy Land. Now, the Crusades used to be in favor in the West. And now with our culture and everything that goes on in education, the Crusades are looked down upon, even by Christians. Whenever we look at church history, we need to see what they thought at that time. And did they think it was good or bad? And the reasons why they went on crusade. And then we can sort of step back and make our own analysis. And as we do find in most things, there's positives and negatives. But ultimately, it was to recover the Holy Lands from the Muslims. Not to go and take it from them, but to recover what had been Christian since the time of Christ and the church began to spread outside of Jerusalem. So at least the time of the apostles, we might say. Uh, the crusades began in 1095. At the Council of Clermont, 
That's probably not how you say it in French. but uh, And continued until the fall of Acre in 1291. So they did succeed and take land back, not all of it, but much of it. And they ended up losing it incrementally all the way up to 1291. So the first crusade, that's the big one. That's the one that nobody really thought was going to succeed except the crusaders who went on it. Here's how it all starts. The Byzantine Empire calls for help. The problem is much of the Eastern Empire, which is still in existence at this time. Remember, Rome and the West had fallen apart because of barbarian attacks. So it's divided into kingdoms. You've got the Franks and the, the German kingdom, and you've got the Spanish kingdom, and the kingdoms of Italy and Sicily and so on. But in the East, it started out as still being very organized. But as time goes on, these new invaders, these new enemies appear. And the Muslims are taking more and more and more. They take Jerusalem, which is their third most holy city, and they continue pushing upwards towards Constantinople. Now, for some time in Jerusalem, Christians could worship freely. And even today, it depends on the Muslim country. Some Muslim countries will allow uh, Christians to go on worshiping, go on about your business. Others persecute Christianity, don't want to see, see anything about it, hear anything about it. And it was like that back then. Depending on what kind of Muslim um, caliphate or um, sultan was ruling, Christians could worship freely or not. And so the problem that came about is, okay, the Byzantine emperor understands, I don't own that anymore, but at least my people can go there. And it's very important to go on pilgrimage. Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, you go on pilgrimage and that helps you to be more holy. You basically, you, you earn credit. They wouldn't say that in the East, but it's a good and holy thing to go on pilgrimage. Not a tourist attraction, but to go on pilgrimage to the holy sites in Jerusalem. Suddenly, they can't go to Jerusalem. So here we see in 476 what the Eastern Empire looked like. This is when the West fell. So the West Falls, and that was uh, the north and, and northern Africa and Europe, uh, Western Europe. But the East still exists under the emperor that's out there in Constantinople. But as time goes on, uh, they will lose much of that territory. So with the Seljuk Turks come in, they're very brutal. They're a tribal group of Turks who come down from the steppes of Russia. And they come down and they adopt uh, the Muslim faith. And they first worked for the caliphates, the Abbasid Caliphate and so on. And later they take over much of the territory that they were once working for the caliphate to um, patrol. So they began to persecute Jews. They began to persecute Christians in Palestine. And Europe started taking an interest. Okay, our people can no longer safely go to Jerusalem. They might be attacked between the sea, between the coast and Jerusalem. We need to go. And the Pope was often telling people, you know, you can go and and earn and gain holiness by going on pilgrimage to see all the relics around Europe, but especially if you go to the Holy Land. The Seljuk Turks started threatening the security of Byzantium. And so the emperor says, you know, I'm, I don't have an army like they do out west. They have all these kingdoms and knights. Why don't they come and help us? And so Alexius at Constantinople says to the Pope, 
He doesn't go to the kings of the West. He knows who's in charge ultimately of spiritual matters and can even press on the kings. He says, come and help us. So he asks Urban II, the Pope. The Muslims had occupied Jerusalem since 638. Uh, For more than four centuries, Christians have been allowed to practice their religion freely in that city. In 1076, Jerusalem was taken by the Seljuk Turks who were said to have desecrated the holy places of Christianity and treated the Christian population with brutality. So all you have to hear is that the places where Christ uh, lived and and where he was born and where he died, where he grew up, and those holy sites which the Eastern Church had built church buildings on and various things, they had been desecrated. That would not make you feel very good if you were in the West thinking about going to Jerusalem. That would anger you. Uh, Much like terrorist attacks anger us today when that happens in America. This is how the medieval Christians would have thought about it. That's our territory. That was a Christian for so long. We could at least go there after we lost it, and now we can't even do that. So Rome, that's Pope Urban II, he answers. He initiates a church council. That's what every church does, right? When you want to get something done, you form a committee. Or is that just in Southern Baptist churches? Um, Well, in the Catholic Church, the Pope has power, he has control, but he's got to motivate the people. And so there is a council called, and there is a sermon preached there that he preached, and he called on mainly the Frankish knights, because the Frankish kingdom was the strongest and the most susceptible to his influence at the time. And so he said, Frankish knights, he called them to vow to march to the east with the twin aims of freeing Christians from the yoke of Islamic rule and liberating the tomb of Christ. So here's the holy sites. The tomb of Christ, the holy sepulcher in Jerusalem. That's supposedly where um, the, the cross was placed and Christ died. To take those from Muslim control. So this is out of sort of the... um, one of the official books on the Crusades, the Oxford Illustrated History of the Crusades. So what's the concern? Liberate Christians and take these sites back. So we can see their reasoning. And depending on your theory of of wars and the just war theory and all of that, which we don't have time to get into, um, you might think this is good, you might think this is bad, not worth it. You know, this is still being debated today when, when America goes to Afghanistan um, the Muslims say, crusade, crusade, and they can call up extra forces by saying that. And Americans debate whether we should even be there and such. Um, there wasn't so much of a debate at the time whether they should go. Uh, most people were ready to go as soon as the Pope called. Oops, black screen. So here's uh, Urban on the left and Alexius on the right. So... Urban, and and that's a statue of him preaching this famous sermon. This is the call to go on crusade. And Alexius there, um, a little weak, wanting to get some help from the West. So here's some other paintings. I'm sure it didn't look quite like this. Uh, The Pope's sitting there, you know, and he's proclaiming, and he's got his friars and such around him, and he's calling people to go, and they're just worked up into a frenzy, right? They just can't wait to go. And he really wants those holy places back from the Muslims. He's not really interested in helping the East. You know, that's just trivial matters. That's just government issues. We've got to get these holy sites back. 
And so thanks to the preaching of himself and Peter the Hermit, I think this is supposed to be Peter the Hermit, the guy with the, the cross in the lower painting there. He's a hermit, friar, monk. Um, and Walter the Penniless, right? These, these are godly men in the Middle Ages. You, you're penniless. You've, you've taken a vow of poverty. You live in a cave somewhere. You're a hermit. Um, these are the guys that everyone would crowd around to listen to. And many of the peasants then said, okay, we will go. We have something to gain from this. We can gain wealth and we can gain honor and we can gain some measure of holiness by going. Something that the peasants did not have or feel like they had in the medieval culture. So they go down to Constantinople and they're sent then to Asia Minor where they were decimated. So they all meet up in Constantinople, all these peasants. And I think, uh, we'll come to it in a minute, but I think it was Peter the Hermit or one of these guys, Walter the Penalist, who led them. And they were decimated and taken captive, those who survived by the Turks, and sold into slavery. So this really isn't the first crusade, but it's the warm-up round. Um, the quickest people to go were the peasants. They had nothing to get ready, no armies to prepare, no horses and, uh, and uh, armor to get ready, anything like that. So the Pope called for a response. He promised those who were killed. So here's how he got people to go. Those who were killed would be remitted from all their sins. This is what's called a plenary indulgence. Plenary means full. And the idea of an indulgence is that you have forgiveness. You can earn credit, in other words, against your sins. Don't go to Christ for forgiveness. Yeah, you have Christ, he would say. But now you're worried about committing these sins in the Christian life, these mortal sins that will keep you out of heaven. If you go on crusade, you will get a full indulgence and not have to suffer the pains of purgatory or losing your salvation and going to hell. And the idea of indulgence had been around a while, but now it becomes official, which will lead Martin Luther and the Reformation to react against the plenary indulgences of his day and so all this connects really to the Reformation. We're starting to see some official doctrines get put into the Catholic Church that the Reformers will respond against and, and help us to understand the Bible better. This indulgence was naturally met with great enthusiasm and multitudes left on the Crusades, including many nobles and even some wives. I mean, this is like the best of both worlds, right? You get to live however you want to live, and then you just go on crusade and all that's forgiven and you can earn fame and honor and maybe get some territory there. And you'll have all of this that the world promises and eternal life because you'll have forgiveness. Even some of the wives went along with their husbands. Uh, once the second wave of crusaders arrived at Constantinople, the leaders then met with the emperor Alexius. And Alexius offered to help them with some support food, money, if they committed to be his vassals, which was accepted. So they're there. They're waiting to cross over and get started with the crusade by attacking the Muslims. The problem is they need some support to get all the way down there. They need money. They need food. They need a wagon train basically going back and forth to bring them supplies. And they're stuck out there and they say, well, we'll accept. We'll be his vassals for now. And so they accept that. It's going to change in a bit. So they get started. They go to Nicaea and they capture a city, the Seljuk, uh, the capital of the Seljuk Turt, uh, Sultan, 
Kalish Arslan. And it was seven weeks. So that went well. That's a pretty big conquest. Then they go to Adorealinum. And this second defeat of Arslan opened the way to Antioch. So they're just rolling with it. They've got the nobles. They've got their armies. They've got the foot soldiers, the knights as well. This defeat was less than a month after the defeat in Nicaea. So this is pretty fast for medieval warfare. To take two cities in less than a month. Yeah, even though the siege lasted seven weeks in Nicaea, they had defeated the army, which ran back into the city, and now they just have to wait them out. So two quick losses for the sultan. So Antioch's the big one. That's the big city. That's a biblical city. That's where Christians were first called Christians. There's a lot of Christians still in Antioch being oppressed by the Muslims. And so this next siege would last a little bit longer. They defeated the Turks after a stalemate. They're just sitting there, pretty much waiting to starve to death on both sides. And uh, there's some treachery. A Muslim named Farouz comes out and he collaborates with the leader of the Frankish crusaders, Bohemond. And Bohemond uh, talked with him. And this guy, Farouz, left his towers that he was in command of vulnerable so that they could get into the city. So he basically said, I'll just ab- abandon my post. That'll make it easier for you guys to get into the city, climb over the walls, take the gate. So they captured Antioch, and that was a huge success. Here comes another Muslim army to respond. So now they're in fear. They just took the city. They barely have any supplies. And here comes a Muslim army to surround them and put them under siege. So this is where it kind of gets um, fantastical a bit. Here's how the soldiers are motivated inside the city, the knights. A poor pilgrim named Peter Bartholomew had arrived, and he had a vision. He said, St. Andrew, this is Andrew the Apostle, appeared to him in a vision and urged him to go to the cathedral of St. Peter in Antioch, a very old church that was still there, had, had survived the occupation of the Muslims. And there he would find buried underground the holy lance that pierced the side of Jesus. So this thing, if you get it, will definitely enliven the troops and give you success in battle. All you needed in ancient times to make money was a relic because people would come to your place and pay to see it. Or to win a battle is a relic. That's not actually true, but that's what they thought. But to them, it was like in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant. When it comes out, we are going to win because God is with us. So he has this vision that he found the Holy Lance. They're supposed to be, normally relics are body parts, right? Teeth, bones. Pull, pull up sometime on Google Images, actual relics. It'll, make, it'll be really creepy. We hear about relics and we think, okay, we've seen a few of them. You should see like supposedly the head of John the Baptist. I mean, it's gruesome. And they preserve these things for hundreds of years, somebody's body parts. It's just, it's gruesome. Some of the relics they have and and they only show them at certain times certain places anyway um, it was those things that had touched uh, in the case of Jesus who had obviously no body parts left on earth after the resurrection you needed to find something that he had touched or something that had touched his body like the lance that came into his side the cross he was nailed to and the cup he used at the last supper so these are the mighty relics of the middle ages you get the the lance of Longinus that's supposed to be the soldier's name who pierced his side you get the cross Parts of the cross. You know, Martin Luther said by his time, there's so many parts of the cross. You could have a hundred crosses built. There's so many little splinters out there that everybody says is part of the cross. And the cup. What's that called? The Holy Grail. 
the Holy Grail. So these aren't just stories that people would later write about, but these are things that people believe they can go and find. Relics were thought to bring power to the Crusaders, an act of divine help from God. The true cross, which was supposed to be a piece of that cross that Jesus was crucified on, was a, was a great relic. Uh, Peter Bartholomew supposedly went and he dug in the basement, we could say, of this church, and he found the lance. And suddenly the crusaders were energized, ready to fight to the death and do whatever it took because they knew they were going to succeed. So they had a great moral change and they were able to then rally out and fight off the Turks. So they've got Antioch. This is a big win, a big win, because really there's not much between Antioch and Jerusalem. There's just some little cities. So here's one I won't even try to pronounce it. It's, it's a Muslim city. This was a city fortress that was not a large city, but nonetheless was made famous by what happened there. Upon entering the conquered city, the crusaders massacred all the inhabitants. Because it was all Muslim, they just went in and wiped everybody out. 100,000 people, according to some Arab historians. They just went in and slaughtered everyone. So it's not just about relics. It's not just about holy sites. It's not about saving Christians from the oppression by Muslims. There's a tendency, particularly with some of these leaders, to just wipe everyone out. And men can get like that in war where they're not focused on the purpose for being there anymore and just go in and, and wipe everyone out. So here's a map of what we're talking about. The... Um, the armies don't all leave together. It's not like, hey, let's all gather in one city. The goal was to meet up in Constantinople, gather together, and then go and fight. So you've got different areas of France over there, and some even cross and go down through Germany. Some will go down and cross over uh, the sea there and come across to Constantinople. But eventually they do form up. They go over, they take Antioch, they take Edessa, and they will eventually take Jerusalem. So here we are at Jerusalem, 1099, a famous date in the Middle Ages. It marked the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. It only took one month and the final assault occurred. So it's recorded that there was about 100,000 soldiers, which is a large army for the medieval times. No one really thought they were going to succeed. Even the emperor in Constantinople thought, these guys aren't going to take Jerusalem, but it'll at least be nice to have some extra fight against the Turks. Well, they actually get down there and take Jerusalem. They breached the walls, and then they went in, slaughtered all the Muslims and all the Jews. So there's three quarters of Jerusalem. There's the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims. They went in and just slaughtered all the Muslims and Jews. And there really wasn't many Christians living inside uh, Jerusalem at that time. After eight days, they're trying to figure out who is going to be the new king of Jerusalem. And this man, Godfrey of Bouillon, uh, another French knight, a French noble, he says, well, I don't want to be king, but if you guys you know, elect me as guardian, I'll be the guardian, but I won't be king. Only Jesus, he said, is king of Jerusalem. So now they have Jerusalem. Let me read you this quote here. Uh, this is anonymous. This is a, supposedly about the event. Then our men held a council and gave out that everyone should give alms and pray that God would choose whom he wished to reign over the others and rule the city. They further gave orders that all the dead Saracens, or Saracens, this is a medieval name for Muslims, should be cast out on account of the terrible stench. Because nearly the whole city was crammed with their bodies, the Saracens who were still alive dragged the dead ones out in front of the gates and made huge piles of them as big as a house. Such a slaughter of pagans no one has ever seen 
are heard of. The pyres they made were like pyramids. These are piles of bodies on fire. So this is a secondary source supposedly quoting somebody that was there at the Crusades. There's another uh, famous painting there of the Crusades. It's supposed to show Godfrey there in his armor. I forget which which monk that is there with the cross and all the people just celebrating the victory with the slain Muslims on the ground. So now we've got to protect Jerusalem, they say. We're here, but it's not safe to travel the roads, the highways. So it's one thing to take a city and stay behind the walls. But what about when you go out and you can't get to the coast to sail back home and go back and, back and forth on the ocean unless you cross this little strip of land between Jaffa, the port of Jaffa, and Jerusalem. So they need to form up some special military orders that are disconnected from the nations in the West. Because now Jerusalem is its own kingdom. So we start to see some of these famous military orders arise. So what does this have to do, first of all, with just Christianity? Because this is Christianity, in a sense, at this time. You've got the Pope and all the Roman Catholic system. You've got the Eastern Orthodox now and sort of their system. Still very close because it's 1099. But if you want to be holy and have all your sins forgiven, you go to the Holy Lands. And now that the Holy Lands are taken back and it's safer, if you have any money at all, you want to go and visit there. And the Pope will even offer you certain indulgences just to go visit at this point and support the work that's happening in this area. So one of the remarkable things from the Crusades is that from it emerges these military orders that have been given approval by the Pope. These military orders were often the most feared warriors of the crusading armies. So important were they that when Saladin, this is a great Muslim general later on, when he captured many of them in Hattin, he had all of them executed. Here are some of the orders that were created as a result of the crusades. So these military monks, basically is what they were, were so good at warfare and so feared by the Muslims that there was no quarter for them. They were immediately killed upon capturing. So the Templars, that's probably the most famous one. It gets a lot of popularity today. Some people think the, the Masonic Lodge is a continuation of the Templars. You know, you could just write a book about the Templars and finding the Holy Grail or something, and, and people make a million bucks from that. But the Templars were a real order of knights. They were named for their headquarters, and supposedly they met underneath the Temple of Solomon. So their headquarters, where they would go to sleep and where they would go to have meetings and such and live, was either near or under the temple. And at this point, it's really just the Temple Mount, right? Because that had been destroyed in 70 AD. And a mosque had been built on it by this point. They took on monastic vows of poverty. So what makes a person a monk is to take certain vows, particularly poverty, obedience to the church, and chastity. So no money, no getting married, no sex, and obedience to the church. These group of knights protected pilgrims on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. So that's how it started. Going to protect them from Jerusalem to Jericho. In 1124, the Catholic Church officially established them as a military religious order. The first order of warrior monks. So this is the first time in church history where you have not just monks, but warrior monks, a military religious order. 
This is traditionally how they would dress. They had the, uh, the white cloak and the white tunic and a red cross on it. So even the red cross today gets their name and idea from this. This symbolized the Templar Knights. And they had a shield with a cross on it. They believed to carry the cross in battle, just like Constantine, would give them victory for Christ. So here's Bernard of Clairvaux. I think we'll talk about him in a few weeks as one of the theologians of the Middle Ages. But he writes about them. He says, first of all, there is discipline and unqualified obedience. If you are a Templar knight, you did exactly what you were told to do and you excelled as best that you could. Everybody comes and goes according to the will of the commander. Everybody wears the dresses given to him and no one goes in search for food or garments according to his whims. So you can see Bernard is encouraging people to go become a Templar knight. He's saying it's just wonderful. They live in a community. You don't have to go get food. You don't have to work. You just go fight soberly and enjoy. They don't have wives. They don't have children. And to reach evangelical perfection. That's something all Christians want, right? You want to be perfect, a perfect evangelical Christian. They live in the same house in the same manner, without calling anything their own, solicitous to preserve the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Impudent words, senseless occupations, immoderate laughter, whispering, or even suppressed giggling are unknown. They don't even giggle. I mean, these are, these are the tough men. They have a horror of chess and dice. So they hate playing games. They hate hunting. They don't even enjoy the flight of the falcon. I mean, come on. That's like not enjoying football today. Every man enjoyed going out and flying their falcon. Not the Millennium Falcon. Actual falcons. Okay, They despise mimes, jugglers, storytellers, all entertainment, dirty songs, performances of buffoons. All these they regard as vanities and inane follies. They cut their hair short because they know it is shameful for a man to wear it long. They are never overdressed. They bathe rarely. That's a great thing in the Middle Ages, right? Who needs to bathe, right? These guys are holy. They're dirty. Their hair suit. In other words, they're a manly man. He's not saying this to dissuade people from going. He's persuading them. They're tanned by the coat of mail in the sun. They're dirty. They're hairy. They're smelly. They have no time for nonsense. They fight for the Lord. These are the Lord's soldiers. So in battle, the Templars had to follow certain rules. They have to fight to the death. They must fight to the death for a holy place of Christendom. There's no retreat. There's no surrender. Fight to the death. Refuse to be ransomed. So even if they are taken captive, they must refuse to be ransomed, which was very common in the Middle Ages. Okay, I got captured. Just ransom me back to my nation and my family. They must accept every combat regardless of the odds. They refuse quarter or ransom to the infidels. Must defend any Christian molested by the infidel. So in other words, They didn't want to be ransomed, and they didn't ransom any Muslims that they captured either. They slaughtered them. Both crusaders and their enemies came to appreciate the Templars' importance. For example, during the Second Crusade, when French crusaders botched a march through a mountain pass and suffered heavy losses, the French king put the Templars in charge of the rest of the march. So the Second Crusade is kind of famous because it doesn't go anywhere. But the king thinks he can figure out how to go through this mountain pass. It fails, and he says, fine, the Templars know what they're doing. Go ahead. The general Saladin, the Kurdish sultan of Egypt, made it his policy to execute them all. We already looked at that. They're too dangerous to be released. So there's Saladin. He is going to be famous because he conquers all the Holy Land and pretty much takes it all back from the Crusaders. And people in the West fear him and respect him uh, during that time. 
So the Templars become very wealthy. That's going to be a problem. It's one thing to fight for the Pope and to fight for Christendom. But when you become wealthy and powerful, now you're challenging the others who hold power. So by the second half of the 12th century, they were one of the leading landowners in Syria and Palestine. They're buying up land, acquiring land, becoming very wealthy. They needed a way to get money from the West to this holy land that they had taken. So they created a banking network, essentially developed the first banking system that would work from place to place. You could go and you could deposit money in Europe and then go sail down to Palestine and take it out of the bank there with certain notes that you had. So in the middle of the 13th century, they began to fight with another order of knights called the Hospitallers. Because of competition in these orders, they declined militarily, though they still had immense wealth. Eventually, the Pope is done with their wealth and their power. He's convinced to suppress them. So in 1312, the order was suppressed and their resources given to the Knights of St. John. So the King of France doesn't like their power because they're not only buying land down in around Jerusalem and Syria, they're also buying a lot of estates in France. The King does not like that. It's taking away from his power. He has the English to fight during this time. So he convinces the Pope to rule against them, and the king goes out and starts capturing and putting them all on trial and killing them, taking their land back and their banking system and their money and all of that. So here is uh, Europe on the left. You can just kind of see some of the areas that they had. They have even temples that they built. And then you see on the right in the yellow holy land that had been taken by the crusaders. And you can see some of the castles and sites that they built there in the Holy Land. So the Templars built quite a few castles to protect the Holy Land. And then you can see the Temple Mount where they had their headquarters. But even up north, even on the island of Cyprus, they are building different buildings. They're building their own little kingdom, you might say. The next group is the Hospitallers. We already mentioned those briefly. These are the Knights of St. John. And that's their traditional wear. It's different. Often it was in the black. The Templars white with a red cross. The Hospitallers black with a white cross. And that's how you would know who they were on the battlefield because sometimes they're going to fight each other for power and control. Uh, Hospitallers also might be on horseback like so. And and probably the one on the um, right there is the closest to what they would look like. Not not so much a plain cross, but as time goes on, they have something a little more ornate. By the way, they survive till today. They're just a sort of like one of these public orders that does charity and such, but they never were wiped out. These were Benedictine monks, and we'll talk about the monastery in a few weeks, but these monks administered care in Jerusalem. So they started out with the purpose of just helping people who were sick, You go all this way, away from your family, away from your kinfolk, away from your estate, and you get sick in Jerusalem, or you get attacked on the road there and you need care. So they really developed some of the first hospitals in the West. They're given resources by the king. We'll call him the guardian of Jerusalem, but essentially he's the king of Jerusalem. Uh, They're established as a monastic order for their role in protecting pilgrims going to and from the sea. However, they could only act in defense. So the Templars... Uh, go towards the east, towards Jericho. They protect that roadway. And then the other direction is protected by the Hospitallers. But Hospitallers don't go out and do battle, at least in the beginning. They built this network of hospitals throughout the Holy Land. In 1206, they were recognized um, 
they they needed military provisions and they're made into a military order. After a conflict with the Templars, they went into a decline. So the Templars and the Hospitallers basically destroy each other by fighting. Their headquarter, and I think this is mostly still there today, although in some ruins, is the Crac de Chevalier. It's a huge castle, and you can you can pull up pictures and see how massive they built these castles. I think it was the last one to fall to the Muslims under Saladin's attacks. So after their decline and loss of their headquarters, they shifted their military focus to the sea, and they said, well, if we can't win on land, we'll become a naval power, which had more possibility for wealth. They continued fighting naval battles until 1798, when they surrendered the headquarters of Malta to Napoleon. So they ended up going to Malta, and that was their naval headquarters. And they actually fought off a, a great Muslim invasion in the 1500s that was trying to come into Malta and then up into Europe. They repelled that. But in 1798, they had to surrender to Napoleon. They're still there today, though, in Malta as, a, as an order of the Roman Catholic Church who does various events and such. Last one, the Teutonic Knights. These are the German knights. These basically had a different kind of cross. It was a Teutonic cross, that which is known in the German area. This is what they would look like on horseback. Because they were a little more recently Christianized, they might even put some of these animal horns on their helmets. They're going to be known for what they fight in the northeast of Europe. And so that's why you see them in this painting in the snow. This is a Germanic order established during the Fourth Crusade. So this develops much later. And uh, they were hospitalers who served the German contingent. So they start out as being part of the hospitaler movement, but they're from Germany. And they're recognized as a separate order by the Pope in 1199. They had amassed great wealth as well, enough to fund their own crusade. But they had no land in the Holy Land because it had already been granted to the Templars and Hospitallers. So they rule in the Holy Land, the Templars and Hospitallers, as far as military orders. They've got enough money to do their own crusade. So what are they going to do? They, they also maintain their national identity. They're mostly German, whereas the other ones, various people would join from different nations. So after this uh, issue of what are they going to do, they became involved in what's called the Prussian Crusades. So here's how it's described. The fighting was ferocious and merciless, fought over an almost impenetrable wilderness of sand dunes, lakes, rivers, bogs, dense dark forests along the shores of the Baltic. In this gloomy and mysterious world of the heathen tribes, ambushes were the normal way of fighting and prisoners were subjected to frightful tortures and pagan rites. So up until this time, we have crusades going to the Holy Land. But now it's crusaders against any non-Christians, any pagans, any unbelievers. And the idea was we're going to take the gospel to them. All these pagans in Lithuania and all of these uh, Prussia and places that are uh, east of Germany, we're going to take it to the pagans, and we're going we're gonna to evangelize them by the sword, just like the Muslims did, right? And we're going to say the Muslims would, would take over an area, convert or die. Well, that's what the Teutonic Order begins to do here. Of course, you know, they get land and wealth and all the things that come along with war. But I'm sure their main goal was to convert people to Christ, right? They received the same accusations that the Templars had received because of the failure of the Crusades, but were able to still concentrate on the Prussian Crusade. So the 
Crusades by this point are done. The Holy Land has been retaken by the Muslims. People don't like crusaders anymore. But the difference is the Teutonic order stays intact for quite some time. They split into groups who, some go to, to uh, eastern Germany where there's still some pagan tribes and take that. Some go north to Prussia. Some go out to Livonia. After jealousy of their accumulated wealth had caused them to have many enemies, and then the subsequent attacks by those enemies, the Teutonic Knights lost their military strength. So over time, it's just not as popular to be part of these orders, and their enemies are attacking them more and more. They lose strength over time. They sort of just fade away. I think officially they're still in existence today. They were never wiped out like the Templars. They live on in Germany under the order there for charity and such. The German order survived in both Germany and Austria in the 20th century, perhaps even involved in an assassination attempt on Hitler. By the way, speaking of relics, Hitler loved to go and get relics. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Well, that's not real. But the idea behind it is, is that Hitler would send soldiers and special units to go and hunt down these relics. And he believed, even though he wasn't a Christian, he believed that any kind of relics, especially the Christian ones, would give him great power and show that he could succeed and take over the world. And so there's a copy of the, uh, well, I won't say a copy. He thought it was real, of the spear that stabbed Jesus in the side. I think it's in Austria today. By the way, there's three or four of these lances so in the world. Jesus supposedly was stabbed, I guess, by all of these. That's how that's how relics work. And there's so he got the the lance of Longinus. I think that's the most famous one. It looks the prettiest. It may even have gold around it. And he captured it, but it didn't help Hitler, you know, win any battles um, in the end. All right, Second Crusade. We just have a few minutes, and I'm going to fly through this one. Second Crusade. The First Crusade had been a war that was victorious against all odds. After that, ups and downs, but most are going to fail. So Muslims strike back. They take Edessa from the Christians. On Christmas Eve 1144, this general, this new general named Zengi. So Zengi comes from the east, and he knows how to fight. He enslaved the western women that he captured. Edessa is lost. So you're in the west. You know, you're celebrating Christmas. A few weeks later, you get the news that not only have the crusaders lost the city, but these women have been enslaved and the children have been enslaved. So let's go on another crusade to take it back. This is where it gets funny here. The second crusade was launched in confidence that God would give them victory again. While the first crusade had been led by lords and knights, in the second crusade, kings would lead the way. So the first crusade, the Pope says, let's go. And then he calls on the nobles to go. And the nobles want to go because they're not kings and they can go there and be kings. Well, after that, the kings realize, hey, we can get a lot of political clout for going on crusade. So from this point forward, the kings now want to go. And that's part of the problem is you have these kings going. They don't know what they're doing and they continue to lose. So here's what it looks like in Europe at this time. Um, you have all these different kingdoms, particularly the Franks, which today is just France. The Holy Roman Empire, that's Germany. So the French king, the German king, and then the kingdom of England, the English king. Those are the three main players in the Crusades from here on out. So there's this fighting back and forth. On Christmas Day, King Louis VII of France announced, I'm going to go on crusade. 
But the French nobles were not interested. They're done with crusade. That didn't work out so well the last time. You got to leave your estate. Who knows what's going to happen when you're gone? Well, bring in the preacher again, Bernard of Clairvaux. The, the crusade wasn't going to happen. Nobody wanted to go but the king. And Bernard comes and he preaches a sermon. And uh, he went around preaching many sermons, especially in Germany. And he wanted to get Conrad III, the king of the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany, he wanted that king to go with the king of France. So put two kings together and have them go. So Conrad said, okay, fine. Um, heard your sermon. I'll go. They took separate routes, though. He said, I'm not going with the king of France. They took separate routes to get to Constantinople. I think France sailed and, and Germany went along the um, land route. Going through this kind of quick here. You can read up on it in any good book on the Crusades. The French king reaches Antioch in 1148 in March. And he doesn't know what to do next. Um, there wasn't many of his forces even left by this time. The target of the Second Crusade is unclear. Where do we go? Do we go capture Edessa again? That's kind of out in the desert, not that big a deal. Do we uh, go capture the Tripolitan castles that had been taken along the coast by the Muslims? Do we go after Zingi's son, the, the famous general at this point? Or do we go help out in Jerusalem? Because they're going to be attacked on and off as well. So the king doesn't know what to do. He decides to go to Jerusalem after several weeks, touring the sites of the Holy Land. Uh, Louis VII and Conrad III, they held an assembly at Acre, a town outside of Jerusalem there. And they don't even know what to do. They're trying to decide on what to do. None of the heads of Antioch, Edessa, or Tripoli are even there. So the heads of those cities aren't even there. The king of Jerusalem is there. The patriarch of Jerusalem is there. The grand master of the Templars are there. And they decide they're going to not retake any cities that have been taken by the Muslims, but we're going for Damascus. That's where the Muslim headquarters that's hitting us the hardest is at. Let's go to Damascus and we will teach them a lesson. So to make a long story short, it was an abysmal failure. They surrounded the city, but they got on one side. They basically had no water. The sun was beating down on them. After four days, they withdrew. After this, Conrad and Louis toured Jerusalem some more, and they went home. So that was the famous Second Crusade. Um, the Crusader states worsen at this point. Damascus upset. How dare you come and try to take our city? And so more occurs where the Muslims march out and fight and try to retake even more. So the Second Crusade not only failed to measure up to the first, but it was counterproductive. So then we come to the third, which we'll pick up next time. I'll go pretty quick. But the third, it was interesting there, is the famous Richard the Lionheart. You know, he goes, he does win some battles. But again, not much happens. They go home. And he's known as a, he's known as a famous king, Richard the Lionhearted. And still, supposedly, in many Muslim countries, they'll tell their kids, you better be good or Richard the Lionhearted is going to come and get you in your sleep. They're so scared of him because he was such a, a fearsome uh, king. But he also married, didn't he marry Robin Hood and Maid Marian? Yeah, I haven't seen that movie. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time in church history. And even though there's a lot of, of secular mixed in, uh, it's one at this time. And, and people use the world to gain power in the church. And the world used the church to gain power in the world. And there's still much of that today, Lord, so we can learn lessons here. Um, help us to be discerning as we study church history and to glorify you in our studies. Amen.